completely dysfunctional. And Abe had to do the same thing. He had to give um, incentives for companies to uh, to raise wages. Uh, and he had to call in the heads of all the big companies into his office and say, come on, we need to get out of uh, uh, deflation. And you can only do that if you raise wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't, your first thought is, hang on a sec, that's the job of the, um, uh, of the unions. How can you end up with a situation where the companies give a bigger wage hike than the unions asked for? And so um, Kishida's presenting that as a new capitalism, but it's, it, it's still the, you know, old wine and new, uh, new bottles. It's, uh, it, it, it's um, polishing an old story. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Talk again soon. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 up 0.6% in Australia. The SX200 up a quarter of a percent. Cosby uh, in South Korea also rising. That's advanced about 0.8%. Looks like there's going to be um, a rebound for the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 0.4% in the commodities markets. Uh, Brent crude oil is stronger at $83.32 a barrel. And then also gold is trading uh, around about unchanged over the New York close, $1,824 an ounce. That's it from me. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for Back Chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. Let me give you a weather forecast update. Cool, cloudy periods in the morning and at night. Mainly fine, very dry during the day. It's going to be a maximum temperature of about 22 degrees. Mainly fine and very dry in the next few days. It's 17 degrees, 51% relative humidity. And there are a couple of warnings in place. The red fire danger warning and the strong monsoon signal all in place. Coming up to 8.32, here's Andrew Chawoski with the half-hour news. The CEO of the World Green Organization, William Yu, says he expects to see double-digit increases in electricity tariffs as local power firms transition to cleaner fuel. The government is reviewing proposed adjustments to next year's tariffs submitted by Hong Kong Electric and CLP. Yu told Janice Wong that the transition from coal to natural gas, as well as the recent surge in oil and natural gas prices, were to blame. When you look at the price increase in natural gas, as well as the increase in our net asset value, I think it could reach a a double-digit increase in the percentage of our increase in the electricity tariffs. We, We can see a big change in the energy mix. The U.S. Justice Department has charged a Ukrainian man, Yaroslav Vizinsky, over a huge ransomware attack on an American company in July that affected 1,500 businesses worldwide. The hack targeted the software firm Kaseya, whose customers became infected and transferred large sums of money to the attackers to regain control of their accounts. The Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco had this warning for those involved in similar activities. We have been using every tool at our disposal and leveraging every authority we have to hunt down and hold accountable cyber criminals wherever they may seek to hide. And our message should be clear. If you target victims here, we will target you. The government has ordered compulsory COVID testing at 11 kindergartens and nursery schools and primary one classes at Tunmun Government Primary School after an outbreak of upper respiratory tract infections. It said the move was a precaution as symptoms were similar to COVID, but fully vaccinated people would not need to get tested. Separately, Hong Kong recorded zero COVID cases yesterday.
A Singapore court has put on hold the imminent execution of a Malaysian drug smuggler who campaigners say has limited mental capacity. Nagaanthran Dharmalingam was due to be hanged tomorrow. However, his lawyer says an appeal court will hear the, course, the case later today, meaning the execution could still go ahead. The Malaysian government and human rights groups had called for the execution to be halted because of his limited IQ. The former president of the United States, Barack Obama, has told the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow that the world isn't doing anywhere near enough to fight climate change. He called on young activists to continue putting pressure on governments and companies. I want you to stay angry. I want you to stay frustrated. But channel that anger. Harness that frustration. Keep pushing harder and harder for more and more. Because that's what's required to meet this challenge. Gird yourself for a marathon, not a sprint. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On this morning's programme for our main topic, uh, we're talking about uh, what's hoped will be the reopening of the border, most likely in stages and possibly beginning soon. Chief Executive Carrie Lam says that cities in Guangdong are expected to be the first to resume quarantine-free travel with the SAR and that priority would be given to people with business requirements or on compassionate grounds, including those with an urgent need to visit elderly family members or attend funerals. It's thought the first stage could begin by the middle of next month with full reopening possibly by next June. Besides the Leave Home Safe app, uh, travellers would also have to use the mainland's health code system so authorities could monitor their whereabouts. After 9.15, we're discussing the latest uh, spacewalk by astronauts aboard the Tiangong Space Station and also space security amid uh, US calls to establish uh, international rules governing activities in space. You can let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 um, and just before we uh, introduce uh, our guests this morning and uh, move on to our main topic, a uh, quick uh, announcement from the Transport Department. Uh, so, owing to a vehicle being on fire, um, all lanes of the Chengqing Tunnel Airport bound are closed to traffic and motorists are advised to use alternative routes. Uh, joining us now on the line, we have uh, Michael Teen, uh, Deputy to the National People's Congress and uh, Legislative Councillor, and Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, uh, Co-Director of the Hong Kong New Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Um, uh, Michael Teen, um, uh, first, uh, uh, good morning to you. Um, good morning. Hi. Um, so, the uh, timetable that uh, reports... Uh, say could begin fairly soon, begin next month for uh, opening up with the mainland. Um, uh, is that within your expectations? Well, I first started uh, floating this idea around about two, three weeks ago, and it seems like uh, everything is falling in place, so I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, I think between now and then, two things need to happen. First of all, uh, the uh, Leave Home Safe app. 
uh, on a real name basis with full uh, address and everything uh, needs to be extended to all uh, classification of uh, dining establishments. So people uh, going to the mainland, once they, their application is approved, uh, if something happened, they would have record of their uh, 14 days prior whereabouts so that they could also track all other Hong Kongers who subsequently apply if they happen to be in the same place at the same time, then they would probably be excluded from quarantine free and would be uh, asked to go through 14 days quarantine. Um, so that is the first thing. The second thing, I think the mainland health experts are planning a visit, uh, at least they've been invited, uh, to visit a whole host of facilities in Hong Kong. I guess at least they could, uh, you know, write a decent report to Beijing saying that their work and everything has been completed. Uh, I think uh, it would probably include the airport or the some of the quarantine hotels, the quarantine facilities, uh, hospital, especially the uh, infection control center at uh, Northland Tau. Okay, so these are the places that the key targets that they will look at. Uh, so these two has to be in place. And I think uh, uh, as early as middle of next month to a partial uh, opening of the border uh, is a bit too optimistic because then the reform um, safe app extending all dying establishments needs to be done uh, as quickly as or as early as uh, end of this month, leaving you 14 days for the record to be accumulated. So I would say that probably the end of the year, uh, you know, give it another half a month would be probably the soonest. Okay. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Ada. Um, yeah. Michael, according to the news, um, the first uh, phase uh, would only be a small pilot program involving small daily quotas, uh, and then to be followed by an expansion around uh, Chinese New Year time. So, so you know, that pilot program uh, is very, very small, right? Yeah, you're looking at about a thousand quota daily. And, then, and only from Shenzhen and not from other parts of China. You mean two? Yeah. Um, it should be to Guangdong province. But uh, when I floated this idea almost a month ago, I proposed strictly only Shenzhen, but it may be uh, Guangdong province. Hmm. OK, uh, Professor Brutoni, uh, from a public health perspective, uh, is it uh, safe now, do you think, to start opening the border? Well, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that there is no mm -hmm. contraindication at the moment. Mm -hmm. Certainly, as we all know, there have been no cases of uh, community transmission in Hong Kong since May. Um, there are very few uh, cases um, in China. Yes, there is no no issue whatsoever about opening the border. I think that I, I agree with the, with the plan. It would be nicer in due time to have a more specific uh, roadmap timetable. So uh, what needs to be done and how long it will take uh, for this to be done, implemented. I think that uh, it is reasonable for us to ask uh, the Hong Kong SAR government to uh, uh, 
in, in coordination with, uh, with Beijing to really lay down uh, all the various steps and how long it will take to implement all those steps. Mm. That would make a lot of uh, clarity. And what about um, security this side? Because uh, the, the mainland is having a, a sporadic uh, outbreaks of COVID-19, isn't it? And we, we don't have yeah, any well cases here right yeah. now. Well, that's, that's okay. I mean, the, the whole world has cases of coronavirus at the moment. So <laughs> I don't see, I don't see the... I don't yeah. see so the from um, uh, Professor, from the small uh, quota, we see that uh, students uh, would not be a priority. We see that business people and um, you know people with uh, family situations would be given priority. I mean that's understandable. But eventually, a lot of um, uh, school children who are now living in the Guangdong province near the Shenzhen border they need to get to Hong Kong on a daily basis uh, to attend school. Um, how, how do you think that could happen? Well, this is really uh, well. It's uh, it's a very difficult question for me to. Uh, make any comment on the technicalities of allowing these type of, uh, of exchanges that are beyond my remit and even my understanding of how this could happen. I hope that uh, also students will be able to go from Hong Kong to Guangzhou and back because certainly at Hong Kong U we have many students uh, in our undergraduate and postgraduate programs who uh, cannot see their families and relatives now for years or if they do I mean they take all their vacations in order to spend uh, three weeks in quarantine so it's uh, it's a little bit uh, I hope that uh, even students uh, will be considered uh, because they are part of uh, a very important exchange between the mainland and Hong Kong. Hmm. Um, Michael Tina, the last time we spoke, uh, you said that there were concerns in the mainland about things like uh, security at our quarantine hotels. Uh, has there been any change in that situation? I think government stopped approving all requests for quarantine uh, <coughs> hotels to open some of their facilities to the public after I raised a big fuss about it. yet put a policeman in front of each hotel, but uh, I guess <clears throat> they've uh, 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 applied a more <clears throat> stringent uh, security enforcement on the hotels. Uh, also, uh, another key concern of the Guangdong Health Department is our very wide exemption list of uh, travelers coming in from Western countries, uh, uh, not going through any kind of uh, mandatory hotel uh, quarantine at all, that list has been drastically reduced uh, to a point where even diplomatic uh, background personnel uh, needs to go through the quarantine. So that actually is a very, very important uh, gesture on the part of uh, Hong Kong government to show them that uh, we are sincere. Now, I just want to make a comment when they, if and when they open the border on a partial basis, there are questions that, there's a very interesting question that is still being debated uh, up north, which is that uh, given that we all know it's going to be restricted to business and family related uh, uh, nature uh, of the visit, so it's not like golfing or, you know, uh, shopping or whatever. Uh, the dilemma they're facing is that 
how stringent is the vetting of this application? Because we all assume that if the daily quota is 1,000, the application initially could be, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands. So how do you pick from that? Is it strictly first come, first serve? Do you vet the, um, how genuine these uh, claims are? Or do you have to justify that it is so urgent that you cannot spend 14 days in a hotel, that you have to go in right away? For example, business emergency in factories, uh, certain extreme illness of family members uh, that you have to visit right away. That part, I think, is uh, something uh, that is of great concern to uh, Hong Kongers. Okay, okay. There's something I'd like to ask you both, uh, and that is uh, a comment yesterday by uh, Joseph Jung, an infectious diseases expert with the Hong Kong Medical Association, suggesting that uh, we should uh, further narrow the quarantine exemptions, um, and uh, essentially that would mean that uh, aircrew and, and Cathay Pacific uh, aircrew first, perhaps, um, would no longer be um, exempt from quarantine. Um, what are your feelings about that, uh, Michael Teen? Well, I've been advocating that. <laughs> I see no reason why they should be exempted. If it's a quick turnaround, a few days, they must well stay in a hotel. If it's a longer stay uh, and they live in Hong Kong, then, you know, honestly, what is the reason for them um, to be exempted? Uh, so, uh, that is something that I feel probably should have been done uh, the very first time. Mm. Mm. Okay, uh, uh, Professor? Well, you know, it's, again, I mean, I, I hope that uh, travel will be uh, still possible uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, you need to make certain, uh, have certain controls, but... Uh, Yes, I've seen for I've said for many times that this seems to be a little bit uh, um, too much. I mean, that basically is locking uh, Hong Kong out of the rest of the world. But that's what it is. Now, you know, all, all these uh, reopening uh, discussions um, are based on the fact that the leave home safe app could be extended to all dining establishments and people... Uh, would have to uh, record um, their presence in, in any restaurants, um, you know, on a compulsory basis. Michael, how, how difficult is this to be implemented? We, we saw a lot of complaints and in the last few weeks were because um, the FEHD markets, you know, began to, um, to implement these compulsory measures. If it's uh, <clears throat> three months ago, I would say totally out of the question. Uh, now, if you look at the uh, widespread acceptance of Leave Home Safe app in the category C and D uh, restaurants, because uh, I've used it all the time everywhere I go, I've never ever seen a case where there's uh, any kind of a dispute. People just walk up and do it. Uh, now, with the Category B establishment, which is by and large the uh, biggest group with about 11 to uh, 12,000 establishments, uh, is that going to be a, uh, uh, 
huge resistance from the diners or affect the business. If you listen to the electrical uh, um, rep of the uh, F&B uh, uh, sector, they say they expect business to drop 10 to 15 percent. Now, that actually is not a huge drop. It's a small drop. So they are expecting that they wouldn't expect their business to that much of an extent. But the key development in the last three months, uh, other than the fact that there's a gradual acceptance that leave home safe is not something that government used to track people, and more and more people convinced that there's no tracking device, all the information is stored in your handphone, and unless you download it to the mainland authorities, because this is their condition uh, to exempt quarantine, uh, basically, nobody else knows where you've been, all right? And I think that's been gradually accepted. But the, that, the one thing that is, has been an impediment has been that a lot of elderly people don't have smartphones. You know, if you look at our consumption coupon, most of them rely on the octopus. They really don't have a smartphone. So government started uh, asking for the home safe app. Uh, or uh, using that uh, in all government services uh, at the beginning of this month. Uh, and as you read in the papers, a lot of uh, uh, elders in Hong Kong are now scrambling for smartphones. And so I think by the end of this month, uh, it should pretty much be uh, almost a norm now in society to carry this uh, leave home safe app wherever we go. Uh, and I think it's something we actually eventually need anyway, uh, regardless of whether we open the border or not, because we really need some uh, impetus or incentive to help our elderly in Hong Kong uh, to get smarter <laughs> in terms of their daily lives, because there's so many things you can do with your smartphone. Yeah, sure, for sure. Um, okay, uh, we have another guest uh, now with us uh, on the line, um, Mark Michelson, uh, Chairman of and uh, Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Morning, Jim. So, um, Mark Michelson, so what do you make of this uh, uh, a possible timeline for reopening the border with the mainland starting perhaps uh, next month and with maybe a full reopening by June? Uh, well, I think that's good news, of course, a lot of people would like it a bit faster, but at the same time, if we can do it, that would that would make it a lot easier for, for example, members of our group who are all uh, heads of Asia for multinational corporations and who's, for whom China is the biggest part of their business. This is very important. But, of course, the other side of that is they want to get out internationally. And, of course, they can, but coming back to a two- or three-week quarantine is really tough. And what it's doing is is perhaps... Uh, hasting decisions as to whether they're going to stay in Hong Kong, not only themselves, but perhaps their companies as well. So um, what effect has it had for your, for your members uh, you know, on, on their business activities? I mean, they have to do most, uh, most activities uh, online um, via Zoom or whatever. Yeah, um, which, yeah. Is okay, which is okay to some extent, but, you know, some of this, some of this requires face-to-face face. if possible, inspecting various various facilities, uh, meeting people, obviously getting involved with people. There's some things you can do for so long. And, you know, they've been doing it for a year. So let me just read 
one brief quote from one of the executives. We made a decision on a, as a company 15 years ago to put our Asia-Pacific headquarters in Hong Kong. We are loyal, maintain long-term relationships, and don't run away when the first wind or rain comes. But how can you run a multinational business after 18 months of no travel and prospects of another year or so of no travel? So that's, that, that's what's beginning. That's become, it's risen to the top of, of the issues for many of the, of, the, of the companies in Hong Kong. We would welcome, welcome the opening to China for sure, but at the same time would hope that there's also an easing, at least gradually at least, of the, uh, of the international situation too. Uh, Mark, I guess your members, uh, being CEOs and uh, being you know senior uh, people at the multinationals, they they would like to go to different cities in China, uh, to Shanghai, to sure. Beijing, but at the moment uh, this arrangement is only applicable to the Guangdong province. How does that sound? It's a it's a problem. Many of them have been doing it, and I you know it's a question of whether they're still doing it. But many of them do. But what they do is they go to China for two or three months. And just you know, and and go through the the quarantine, and then come back through, go through the quarantine in in Hong Kong. But they make that commitment. Uh, one of the executives, for example, was he, and he's originally mainland Chinese, but he just took a, a major trip, and he, he was to China first, and then to Europe, and then to the U.S. and it's been gone three or four months. So this is this is becoming, if not the norm, it's becoming fairly common. Okay. Um, um, Professor Brutoni, I want to ask you about um, uh, medical uh, developments, but just before that, um, um, uh, just uh, turning to Michael Teen again, because I know you can only be with us till nine o'clock. Michael Teen, what do you think uh, about the possibility of uh, reopening with uh, the rest of the world to international travel once... Um, we have uh, reopened and uh, integrated once more with the mainland. How long do you think it might take before before there is quarantine-free uh, international travel, at least to certain destinations? It all depends on one uh, question or one policy. The rest of the world are slowly, gradually moving towards a coexisting with COVID. Uh, policy uh, uh, once the vaccination get to a certain level vaccination rate uh, and asking people not to flood the hospital and stay home even if they are tested positive because the vaccination would uh, prevent them from serious illnesses and then eventually hopefully treat it like uh, you know common flu but obviously many countries are experimenting that uh, as long as China continue its zero-case policy, Hong Kong has to follow suit. If that continues, I don't see any chance of us uh, relaxing our international quarantine in Hong Kong until the day. Uh, and I've heard recently that there's been talk within China that maybe they are now at a vaccination uh, level where they can think about coexisting with COVID. If you look at the recent cases of COVID outbursts in China, it doesn't. It didn't result in death or serious illnesses. It's just cases being identified, and uh, they clamped down quickly. But the question now is um, really uh, heatedly debated within China, within uh, on the mainland, is 
how much longer can this go on, right? Because there's been no import cases, uh, but these things are happening. So obviously there's still some kind of a leak. And uh, it's a huge country, 1.4 billion people. Can you continue this forever? Uh, and I think that is the single biggest issue facing uh, whether we will integrate with the rest of the world. Uh, but then you, you've also seen some countries in the West where they declare a live with COVID policy and then the, uh, the uh, uh, COVID cases uh, shot up like a rocket and then they clamp down and apply stringent uh, social distancing measures because uh, like the Singapore. hospital can't take in so many patients and they... The government doesn't have the courage to tell people to stay home and don't come to the hospital, even if you're tested positive. So it's, it's becoming more of a political issue now. So there's no such thing as travel bubbles anymore, Michael, is that correct? No, until we change our policy. Once you have a live with COVID uh, uh, regime, then you can have travel bubble. But then the government needs to, each government uh, participating in that needs to convince its own uh, people that uh, for minor COVID uh, cases, you stay home. Okay, okay, okay. we've got a break now uh, for the news at nine o'clock. We'll be back at three minutes past. Um, thanks very much to Michael Teen, Deputy to the National People's Congress and Legislative Councillor. Um, our other two guests, uh, please stay with us uh, for a few moments. A quick look uh, at the weather. Um, cool in the morning at night. Uh, top temperature today around uh, 22 degrees. The outlook uh, mainly fine and very dry in the next few days. It'll be cool in the morning and temperature difference between day and night will be relatively large. It's 18 degrees now, humidity 53%. A possible timetable for the reopening of the border uh, with the mainland. Um, we have with us uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, uh, co-director at the Hong Kong New Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. Also, um, Mark Michelson, chairman, um, uh, Asia CEO, forum at IMA Asia. Um, after 9.15, we're going to be uh, looking at the uh, spacewalk on the uh, China's uh, Tiangong space station. Um, do let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233 and um, before we resume our conversation with our guests, I uh, have a couple of emails here. Um, James writes, uh, you talk of the reopening of the mainland border and all of the hoops we have to go through to get there with no guarantee from China that it will open. We have been here before, remember, and COVID nicely put paid to that. However, as is agreed universally, our biggest defence against COVID and the one thing that will make some of these issues a moot point is a high vaccination rate among the local population. Frankly speaking, the low vaccination rate in Hong Kong, especially the elderly with such a low population, is shameful and the government has to take ultimate blame. So given that their approval rating is ridiculously low, what's the issue on making vaccination mandatory in Hong Kong or at least requiring it? 
it for entrance to certain venues. It's not as if the government can make themselves any more popular, so why not give it a whirl? Um, and uh, Paul, uh, Paul Zimmerman, that is, writes, uh, Michael, uh, that's, uh, that was Michael Teen, who was on before the break. Uh, Michael explained that uh, study visits by mainland officials are required uh, for uh, Hong Kong's facilities on import control. What are the study visits required for Hong Kong officials to check and verify facilities related to pandemic controls on the mainland ahead of border openings? What checks are required uh, at a minimum? We kind of touched a little bit on that before the break. Um, Let's ask uh, uh, Professor uh, Brutzoni, uh, would you expect that the Hong Kong authorities would have to go and have a look at what kind of infection controls they have on their side of the border on the mainland before we can start letting uh, people from, uh, you know, from the other side come into Hong Kong? This is another you know, political question, mm. not really public health, not really scientific. Right. What I notice is that there is no clear reciprocity at the moment. So people from mainland China can come to Hong Kong without quarantining, but not the opposite. So if there is no reciprocity on this very simple, uh, you know, movement of people, I don't see why there should be reciprocity. There may be or may not be reciprocity. Okay. And, and on the vaccination rate, Professor Brutzoni, uh, this is public health issue. I yeah. noticed that um, uh, around 69% of the yeah. Hong Kong, eligible Hong Kong population has already had its first dose. Um, the numbers are only increasing very, very slowly now. Uh, why, why is that happening, do you think? It's difficult, but, uh, you know, at the moment, as I said, uh, Hong Kong is locked uh, out from the rest of the world. You cannot travel. If you travel, come back. You have to quarantine whether you're vaccinated or non-vaccinated. If you go to China, you have to quarantine whether you're vaccinated or non-vaccinated. There are no cases of coronavirus in Hong Kong for the past six months. No evidence, instance of community uh, transmission here. In fact, it is more risky to be uh, a cyclist on, on Hong Kong roads. There have been, you know, a couple of weeks ago, three fatal accidents uh, than, uh, than catching the coronavirus. So for a number of people who don't really need to travel, don't have any particular plans on doing this, uh, there are simply, there is no incentive. There is no incentive in going to museums, to concerts, to movie theaters, to restaurants, to anything, uh, to, to work. So if, if you don't create a sort of green pass or health pass like uh, it has been done in, in many countries in the European Union, then, of course, people, they don't even think about it. Uh, at the moment, uh, it's, yes, coronavirus, yes, exists, but outside. So, and, yeah. and for the green pass, what, what exactly uh, uh, are they entitled to, if you have one? Uh, well, for example, uh, in France and in Europe, you cannot board uh, an aircraft. Of course, yeah, you cannot board an aircraft anyway, but, you know, because uh, then you will have to quarantine coming back. So, again, I mean, but perhaps uh, there should be also this. You cannot go to a, uh, into a train. You cannot go uh, to most restaurants. You know, there are many, uh, many venues that are off limits if you don't uh, show uh, your vaccination record or a recent uh, 
PCR test, molecular test uh, from a swab, etc., the, the usual thing now. So I think that uh, uh, 70% is not so, you know, it's about what it is now in Germany. It's about the same, uh, the same level. It could be a little bit better, but things, uh, uh, you know, again, I mean, if you, you, you set objectives in order to do something, a year ago, we were told, we get vaccine, is good, once we're vaccinated, everything is fine. Now we find out that this is not the case. Then there is a sort of reluctance from, I think, citizens to follow something because there is no progress in sight. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, we are talking about maybe six months to be able to go to Guangzhou after you put down an application, this and that. What is the incentive? What is the the, the dream, wow, we can go to Guangzhou, but we have to have an application and we will have to do this and that, and maybe only 10% of the application will be uh, accepted. What's that? Okay, uh, Mark Michelson, uh, any of your members are talking about uh, relocating uh, out of Hong Kong because of the current situation, the inability to travel? Yeah, that was, that was happening already. You know, it, it's affecting both. It's not just the executives, it's their staff. Right, and and as you've seen, you've seen the numbers of the number of people leaving leaving Hong Kong, and they aren't all immigrants. But COVID certainly uh, certainly accelerated that process, and so if there are opportunities in in the UK or in Canada or wherever Australia, where they're more perhaps more open, people take advantage of that. And what's happening now is part of it's gradual. I think some are are moving some of their operations to other places. Or, or some, and in some cases, when executives leave, they're not being replaced. And that's not just Hong Kong. That might be an organizational change as well. But it's definitely having an impact. So uh, I think we're going to see we're going to see more of that. And as Professor just said, the uh, the expectations are that it's going to last for quite a while longer, in- including the difficulties of even getting into China, let alone the rest of the world. So it's easy now. You heard overnight the U.S is now allowing travel if you're yeah. if you're double vaccinated that's fine you can get there but then if you have to come back that's not so great hong kong's always had a, a lot of movement people people come and go i mean would you expect that you know once this pandemic is over some of those people who have left will come back yeah well i think so, some might some might but then you you move on a little bit so you know it's the same that that happened after the uh the handover, some people left, worried about the situation, found that it was actually pretty good in Hong Kong. A lot of people came left. But now the change, there have been changes in the way, especially in the corporate world, operates. And part of that has been accelerated by COVID, digital, digital and, and working from home and all the rest of it. And, you know, they may decide to do it elsewhere. So I, it's hard to, hard to predict, but I think fewer people may, may not be able to come back. But, you know, the other thing, finally, is that, as one of our members said, being an expat, part of the deal is being able to travel. That's why he came to Asia. And uh, and the difficulty now of, of doing that, especially if you're based in Hong Kong, has made that experience a little less uh, attractive. So if they leave Hong Kong, uh, where would the destination be, in particular, you know, for Asian headquarters of multinationals? Well, Singapore's obviously the the main choice, but you know, there are others, uh, uh, another, another business that I've uh, been talking about, they don't like the restrictions in Singapore on, on their businesses, so they'll go to Tokyo yeah, a little bit, but in many cases, I think they would, 
like several companies have actually effectively moved their their heads of Asia back to their home countries to to North America or to Europe. And again, this was partly was other factors involved, but COVID certainly accelerated that process. So they're still responsible for for Asia, but based in uh, based in the U.S. or based in Europe somewhere, and would come back and forth, and they would have deputies in, in uh, based in Asia, but not with the same authority. Okay, uh, uh, Professor Brutoni, uh, we've also had the news that uh, uh, Pfizer, the drug manufacturer, has produced this uh, antiviral pill that uh, seems can cut uh, the chances of uh, hospitalization or death from COVID-19 by about 89%. I mean, that sounds like a very positive uh, development, doesn't it? It it does sound like a very positive development. As always, we will have to find out how this can be then... uh, translated into a relatively simple uh, prescription uh, so that uh, even the the cost of uh, of this cure becomes manageable and for people a little bit easier to use it i'm not saying perhaps like an aspirin i have not really followed the exact pharmacology of this compound what would be the toxicity so forth and so on but clearly uh, in order to make this uh, uh, coronavirus uh, just one of the other viruses that we can catch in winter, having a pill that reduces the symptoms and the chances of complications is much more effective even in terms of implementation than vaccination campaign. You understand that you know, going to the uh, uh, dispensary and taking a drug is much easier than getting an appointment for, um, for a jab. Uh, so I think that this is very, very positive. It shows, again, how much... Uh, can be accomplished uh, if there is basic research that can be translated uh, into a product uh, for uh, improving health. And I'm really delighted to see that, and I hope that this will be uh, deployed in many countries so that we can really uh, assess the effectiveness uh, during uh, um, winter waves of so the drug, the, the drug has been uh, uh, going through trials. I mean, how long do you think it might take before it uh, becomes widely available? Well, it's it's uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, a vaccine uh, took a relatively um, very short route yeah. to become mm. available. I think it's going to be the case also here. I think that if there is now a will to expand trials in other countries and to make sure that the results are rock solid, that can be done very, very quickly. Uh, and then authorization can also, for emergency use, can be done very quickly, a little by little. And this doesn't mean that there are any shortcuts or that uh, it's less stringent, but simply that there is an accelerated procedure. I think that uh, nobody is sacrificing uh, uh, safety for, uh, for speed. That is clear. And, uh, Professor, on the third shot vaccine, um, I noticed that uh, over 20,000 people have now registered uh, and they really want to have the third shot. Uh, but, uh, I mean, with the uh, border opening, uh, do, you, do you see that the third, third shot might be a, a compulsory thing? Uh, simply because I, I note that uh, there are people who have had their two shots, uh, let's say, earlier this year in February, March, and now December is almost here, uh, and I guess uh, they won't have uh, antibodies. A lot of people are really questioning, you know, when should they take the third shot? 
Well, first of all, we don't know. We, I said many times also, antibodies are just one parameter. Uh, we have seen it that even if the Sinovac uh, uh, vaccination uh, raises fewer antibodies than, say, the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, uh, still in Chile uh, has been able to control many of the severe cases despite uh, uh, impressive waves of infection. So antibodies are one thing. For the time being, nobody has asked a level of antibodies in order to travel to any place. So I think that it's rather a matter of your own uh, uh, feeling. Uh, in many places, they are recommending a third dose. Perhaps this is uh, a good idea, in particular for elderly people. And as I said, uh, a, an annual vaccination campaign uh, may still uh, be needed in the future, and it would be wise to plan for that. Okay. Uh, Michelson, uh, uh, any room for, for optimism? Um, how, how are you and your members feeling about uh, the outlook for next year? Well, I mean, from a business side, it's pretty good for most of them. It's, uh, and some of them actually uh, actually have, uh, have done even better during COVID. One, one of our, our financial industry members had a record year last year, and they've already surpassed that record in the first uh, 10 months of, uh, of 2021. So it's a, it's a mixed picture, but they're, of course, are worried about going forward and what this what this impact will be on on their operations as much as anything else. But from a business sense, it varies, but but not so bad. And you know, the hope is that there'll be some progress made in in vaccines and in treatments, uh, in other treatments, and uh, maybe we have reason for going forward. Well, would you say that is still a low percentage of people thinking of relocating? I actually noticed that the Hong Kong International School is actually having advertisements for the for the first time in many years. Yes, and and my, I, I know people who teach at school. Most of the schools are, are down on, on on applications, and and some some have left. It's hard to know if this is a trend, if, if, we, if it will change, but certainly it's, it's a concern. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you both uh, very much for joining us uh, on the program this morning. Uh, that was Mark Michelson, chairman of uh, Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. And also we heard from uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni, co-director of the HKU Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at uh, the University of Hong Kong. And before nine o'clock, uh, we heard from Michael Teen, uh, a deputy to the National People's Congress and legislative councillor. Um, just before we turn to our second uh, topic this morning, uh, another announcement here from the Transport Department. Uh, uh, owing to a vehicle on fire, uh, the slow lane of uh, Chongqing Tunnel, airport bound, is still closed to all traffic. Uh, only the fast and middle lanes are still available. Um, and the traffic queue on uh, uh, the uh, Chongqing Tunnel airport bound ends at uh, Qingkui Highway near Liking Station. OK, uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes of the programme this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, having a look um, uh, sort of uh, uh, up into orbit where the uh, astronaut uh, Wang Yaping has become the first uh, Chinese woman to walk in space um, with her team completing a, a six-hour spacewalk outside the Tiangong space station. Um, there's also talk of... Um, 
uh, well, suggestions about um, trying to forge an international agreement uh, governing uh, activities uh, in space. Um, to look at both of those issues, we're joined uh, on the line by uh, Quentin Parker, Professor at the Department of Physics and Director of uh, Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Um, uh, Professor Parker, uh, welcome back to Backchat. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. So uh, thanks for joining us. Um, so um, so the, the spacewalk uh, uh, seems to have gone um, pretty well. Uh, what, what was your assessment of the exercise? Yes, it went extremely well. In fact, it was around uh, six and a half hours in total, I think, and they uh, undertook a variety of important activities over that time. You can't do things as quickly in space as you can do them on the ground. So there's lots of preparation, there's lots of planning, and there's lots of very careful monitoring of everything you do while you're outside of the space station. So, yes, it's uh, very exciting that Wang Yaping uh, becomes the very first Chinese woman to perform uh, a spacewalk, uh, which is very exciting uh, for, for China. I think a fantastic role model for all women, in fact, not just Chinese women, but all women globally, that, you know, they can be what Wang uh, Yaping is in the future. <laughs> so it's very inspirational, personally. But, um, you know, the kind of activities that they did there were, you know, they were practicing um, uh, the robotic arm maneuvering by adding new components to it and uh, practicing extravehicular maneuvers that might be required if they have to undertake some kind of uh, rescue mission and also testing uh, also the new spacesuits, looking at how they function for extravehicular activities, etc. So there's an awful lot of things that were done, looking at mechanical arm reliability and safety of all the equipment related to all extravehicular activities that they're going to do. I mean, this is the, you know, the, the, the first one by a woman, but it seemed to go flawlessly. It's not that the Chinese have had an awful lot of experience with spacewalks. I mean, uh, I think since 1998, there's been well over 240 done from the International Space Station alone, never mind all the ones done with the Space Shuttle and other missions. But, um, you know, they're actually uh, getting up there. They're starting to do it more and more frequently. They'll certainly be doing a lot more of it in association with the new Chinese Space Station. So it's the start of a new a new process for China, you know, uh, undertaking all the kinds of activities other major space powers have done in the past, in particular Russia and America. So this uh, manned mission to the Tiangong Space Station is expected to last for about six months, right? Correct. That That's yes. quite long, or, the, or that, that should be the longest in, um, in Chinese uh, spaceflight history. What, what is the significance of that? Well, again, it's demonstrating that they can do what the other major space powers have done in the past and do it well almost at the first attempt. I mean, the previous uh, Shenzhou 12, uh, they were up there for 90 days, and I just learned yesterday that the, the three Tycan also on that mission have now gone through the first major phase of rehabilitation. Because don't forget, the longer you are up in space, the more uh, problems you encounter when you get back down to Earth under normal Earth gravity. So it takes quite a long time for the body to recover to the state it was in before you went into space. Now, of course, understanding that process, how it all works, how it affects the body over long periods of time in weightlessness has been something that has been studied for decades already. But, you know, it's the first time that China has independently uh, done this and, and is learning its own way. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff published. Everybody can read that. But, you know, having your own experience is no substitute for that. Uh, how safe is it uh, up there? Because, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of satellites uh, <laughs> <laughs> flying around in orbit now, aren't there? Yes. 
Um, you know, um, space travel is inherently a dangerous activity from blowing up on the launch pad, which has happened many times, to and also with the space shuttle uh, Challenger disaster, etc., to, um, you know, space debris. I think you're talking about space debris, and that's becoming an existential threat to all activities in low Earth orbit because there's just so many uh, defunct satellites and bits of broken satellites and debris up there. You know, a very small particle of paint, for example, a fleck of paint almost destroyed the space shuttle mission by crashing through the window of the space shuttle. And so it's not the mass of the paint fleck that's important. It's only a tiny fraction of a gram, but it's the, it's the momentum, mm. you know, and the kinetic energy through mm. half MV squared, where M is small, but mm. B is very large, yeah. and you square it, and then you get, you know, tremendous impact as a result of that. So um, it's a really serious problem that needs a serious solution, mm. what, or what, a series of solutions, actually. Sure. Uh, what, what, what might those series of solutions be? Uh, because I, I, I notice now that uh, there's, there's more talk about uh, trying to forge some sort of a, uh, international agreement uh, governing uh, activities in space. Yeah, I mean, they're two separate things. I mean, one issue is all about space debris and how you deal with that practically, logistically, and and also through regulation and law. And the other is a general uh, treaties that govern uh, the way that space activities are meant to be undertaken. Well, I, I stress the word meant to be there because, you know, uh, if you have a capability to do something in space, then who's actually going to stop you doing it? At the moment, we have, uh, I think there's about uh, six international treaties negotiated between, I think, around 1963 right up to the last one, I think it was in 1979. There's not been anything really significant since. I mean, there was an agreement about the use of the International Space Station in 1998. That was the last serious attempt. But uh, there's a lot of things have changed. You know, the number of satellites up there has increased enormously and will be increasing further by a very significant amount. So, you know, regulations about how you assign uh, frequencies for communications with all of your spacecraft and satellites, you know, how you govern orbits, you know, and who should be having the given orbit, given how crowded it's getting up there, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons why you need to regulate things properly, just for the safety of the entire environment. You know, there are theories that, you know, you can get to a cascade effect if you have a, a really bad collision between two major satellites that can cause a, a cascade which can actually knock out nearly everything. And then we'd have no mobile phones. I wouldn't be able to talk to you now on my mobile phone. It would all go dead. And, every, you know, and our lives would change almost overnight in terms of what we're used to in the technologies that, that, space, uh, that space gives us through all the satellites that are up there. I mean, there's thousands of satellites up there. There's over 6,000 satellites. Half of them are defunct. They're just space junk now. And it's what we do with that. That's a serious problem. Can they be brought back to Earth safely, or, or what, what, what well, do we, we do with them? we don't want to bring them back to Earth. We want them to burn up in the atmosphere, right. ideally. Right. You want right. to be hitting right. somebody on the head, potentially. Mm. But um, <laughs> although the chances of that are extremely unlikely. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, there's all sorts of technologies that are being tested around the world by different companies. It's recognised as a very serious problem. I mean, it's, there's no easy solution. I mean, for the major defunct satellites that are still integral, they're still in one piece, then you can look at deorbiting uh, technologies to bring them back down to Earth, to, to burn them up in the atmosphere safely, or, or to jettison them even into deep space, uh, potentially, but that's probably more expensive. But um, So, there, you know, it's the smaller bits that concern me. The big bits, you can do those first. It's a low-hanging fruit, but then you get to increasingly smaller sizes of debris. But as we saw just a year ago, um, a small particle punched a hole through the robot arm International Space Station, a piece of junk. You know, if that, okay. what if that had been in the main body, living quarters of the space station? What would that have done? Mm -hmm. 
Mm. You know, you've gone in one side, out the other. You have two holes in the livable quarters. And how quickly can you patch it up? Does it create tremendous damage to the life support system, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, it's an existential threat. Okay, okay. But, uh, I mean, they are not manufactured, uh, you know, to be sort of self-disintegrate after, well, X number of years. Right? No, some are now. I mean, some of the latest uh, satellite designs and technologies are designed to allow for a deorbit after the useful lifetime of the mission. This is something that uh, serious uh, companies and space-throwing nations are really looking at uh, in a very serious way to address what is a you know, well-recognized problem. Okay, okay. All right, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Quentin Parker there, who's a professor at the Department of Physics and director of the Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Um, and uh, just before uh, we bring uh, this part of the programme uh, to a close, um, a few more emails here from listeners uh, on our main topic of this morning, which was uh, the possible timetable for the reopening uh, of the border and also the, the vaccination rate. Uh, uh, Andrew writes, uh, any Hong Kong resident currently outside the SAR not only needs to pay a punitive fee uh, of uh, 21 days in a hotel upon return, but uh, needs to file for a month or more right now as the government has not allocated enough hotels to deal with this law. Why is this happening and why can't there be at-home quarantine? Um, Alonso says, uh, your guest, Professor Brutzoni, is 100% correct in saying that Hong Kong's low vaccination rate can be partly attributed to the government's reluctance to reopen the borders. As he said, many people are not incentivized to take the jab because they cannot see the resultant benefits in terms of easier travel. You asked uh, Mark Michelson about people leaving Hong Kong. My contacts uh, in a number of large global banks indicate that there's been a surge in international, sorry, a surge in internal applications to be relocated overseas, particularly to the UK rather than Singapore. In almost all of these relocation requests, the employees cite Hong Kong's restrictive quarantine policy and not the national security law as the principal reason for their decision. Philip says, uh, Mr. Teen, that was Michael Teen, mentions that uh, older people need smartphones to make themselves smarter. What about old people getting vaccinated first? We have the worst vaccination rate in the world for the older population. If they aren't smart enough to get vaccinated, they won't be able to work a smartphone. That from Philip. And uh, David says, uh, in the UK, the tracking app had a problem with false results. This meant uh, many people had to stop working due to the error. Dictating that all people uh, carry smartphone is wrong. Not only the telephone companies are designing telephones uh, so that you cannot change the battery by yourself or uh, it only lasts for one year, then throw your phone away and buy a new one. It is wrong that society is being designed to run on the telephone, we are putting all our eggs in one basket, and if the communication system goes down, we are all in trouble. That from David. Um, thank you very much uh, to all of our listeners and uh, those of you who wrote in, and uh, thank you to Ada. And just before we go to the uh, news summary and morning brew, a quick look at the weather cool in the morning and at night mainly fine very dry during the day with a top temperature of around 22 degrees today the outlook uh, mainly fine and very dry in the next few days it will be cool in the morning and the temperature differences between day and night will be relatively large currently it's 18 degrees humidity 50 percent the red fire danger warning is in effect 
We all want a prosperous Hong Kong. To improve our quality of life in every aspect, we need someone who loves our country and Hong Kong to achieve it with us. The Legislative Council general election will be held on December 19th. The nomination period runs from October 30th to November 12th. Forms are available at the Registration and Electoral Office and District Offices and at elections.gov.hk. Improve the electoral system. Ensure patriots administering Hong Kong. The news summary with Vicky Wong. The CEO of the World Green Organization, William Yu, says he expects to see double-digit increases in electricity tariffs as local power firms transition to cleaner fuel. The government is reviewing proposed adjustments to next year's tariffs submitted by Hong Kong Electric and CLP. Poland has deployed extra troops along its eastern frontier with Belarus and will close a major border crossing as it attempts to stop thousands of migrants trying to enter the country. Warsaw says Belarus is trying to provoke a major confrontation by encouraging people to force their way across. The U.S. Justice Department has charged a Ukrainian man, Yaroslav Vizinsky, over a huge ransomware attack on an American company in July that affected 1,500 businesses worldwide. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for cats. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you. Welcome to Tuesday here on The Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Well, with great Aussie music and serious government ads, Jared Watt will be with you at 10.40 today for his weekly Antipode and update. After 11, Dr. Merrin Pierce has Ashley Bang from ADM Capital Foundation joining him to share some of the impacts of climate change and overfishing on Hong Kong's seafood industry following the release of their latest report, which is titled Sink or swim to the point. Morris Day, Tuesday. We're going to talk to Morris live from Melbourne. He's on location today conducting a workshop on the future of reimagining hotels post COVID. Very, very different future for that industry. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, and a little bit about bending the fabric of space time via warp drive. Rose Tattoo, who's got the cash? It is 25 minutes to 10 for a lovely Tuesday morning here on Radio 3.